Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today, we're talking with Fisher Mays of the band Wish Kit. We talked about 12 Rods' 2000 album, Separation Anxieties. We also talk about the documentary Accidents Waiting to Happen and about Todd Rundgren and the growing cult of 12 Rods. Wishkit released their EP Hot Gold early last year and just recently followed it up with a four-way split with Gnawing, Motroper, and Seattle's New You. Check that out now wherever you stream music. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a comment, and reviews definitely help. Okay, let's chat with Fisher. Hey Fisher, how's it going? Hey Jeff, I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Uh, pretty good. You know, just uh, working, working <laughs> a day job. I feel that same here. Thanks for having me on the show. I've been. Uh, I know we've. This has been a. Uh, we'll get to it one day, kind of thing for a while. So I'm glad we're finally to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the thing we're getting to today, we're talking about Twelve Rods's album "Separation Anxieties" from 2000. That came out on V2 Records, and it was produced by Todd Rundgren, and I know we'll talk about that a lot. Oh, yeah. It's their third full length. And what I'll ask is, when was the first time you heard this band or this album? Well, it's kind of funny. I think um, when we talked about doing this, I had a couple different options. This album was my... Um, was my first choice because I think it's the most interesting to talk about. But of all like my favorite records and favorite bands, this is probably the one I got into um, most recently. It was only like 2015, 2016. Um, my friend Claudio, who used to play in that band, Commander Salamander, we were talking mm-hmm. about music one day and we were talking about just the bands we were into. And I think I had mentioned the bands I was listening to a lot at the moment, which was like The Rins, Palvo, Brainiac, Pavement. So kind of the 90s indie rock thing. All spectrums of kind of that. Silkworm, stuff like that. Um, But Claudio said to me, like, oh, so you've heard 12 Rods, right? And I remember being like, who the hell is 12 Rods? Mm -hmm. Like, I had never, I've never heard of them before. Um, Later I found out that I actually had listened to them once, but we'll get to that later. Um, But after that, Claudio sent me a bunch of songs. And I wish I still had the DMs I had now because the songs that they recommended to me at the time were very um, unique. I don't think it's the ones that most people usually recommend. I know one of them was What Has Happened off of this record. And then there was a couple songs off of Lost Time, their last album. And then I think Make Out Music off of the AEP. So a little bit of like a hodgepodge. And instantly I was like, wow, why have I never heard this before? So after that, I got really into it. And as you may know about me, that when I like a band, I dig in really hard. So <laughs> after yeah. that, I've uh, been a big fan of the band since and have scoured the Internet. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, what I was thinking about today with like kind of digging more into like the other albums was like, why didn't it was almost like why didn't we pick Mega City Four based on how much I feel like <laughs> that comes up? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but I know how it is. I mean, it's also like you know the kind of behind the scenes is 
basically I pick out of your picks, so that that yeah. way I'm not doubling up on things that I've already done. Uh, and also sometimes it's sort of like I don't know anything about this, so maybe I want to learn something about it. And I feel like I can say that it's like I don't know if I knew Twelve Rods or if I had just heard the name. Uh, but I know for sure I had never listened to 12 Rods. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's it's weird because all the things that you even mentioned that I'm not, like, super steeped in, uh, you know, like Brainiac, it's like I know mm-hmm. what that is. But it's like, I you know, I, I can't, like, tell you that much specifics or really any. But for the most part, it's like 12 Rods was like, I don't know what this is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, it was, it was really surprising because it's like, a band that I had never heard of, which I there's millions of them, um, mm. and but also there that's a band that also has a documentary <laughs> about the, I mean to a degree, um, mm. but you know like it's yeah so, so okay so from that moment of you kind of hearing about them so it it clicked for you with this band, yeah it clicked for me pretty quickly and it was one of those where once I like something you know I start listening to the whole catalog and. I listened to the whole catalog. I listened to all their records. I don't think I listened to their um, like demo album or whatever Bliss. I don't think I really had heard mm-hmm. that until much later because that wasn't that's not technically a full release or whatever. I guess. Um, but the other stuff, so Gay, um, Split Personalities, Separation Anxieties, and Lost Time, I had all listened to a ton, and I kind of listened to them all at once. So I just kind of like you know to me it was just twelve rods. It wasn't like the first album and then the second album came later. So when I went to the internet later to read more about them and I'm like, why have I never heard of this band before? Every review or every comment I'd found had been like, I love 12 Rods. They're the best band ever. I love all their albums, except for that separation anxieties one. That one sucked. Like it was like yeah. across the board. Like everyone hated this record, you know? And it was something where I didn't really like as someone who listened to all the records at the same time, I didn't really pick up on a huge difference, you know, at the moment. Like, to me, like, it doesn't sound that different from the album before it. I do think it sounds pretty different from the album after that, but I think that's more of the passing of time and, you know, the way producing and stuff and the way, I mean, the skills of of, uh, the band at mixing and producing their own work kind of progressed. Um, So it was really interesting, and that kind of and be like why does everyone hate this and kind of going deeper into that and i think the documentary does a pretty good job of explaining kind of what happened there <laughs> yeah yeah when i was listening to lost time though like it really did feel like a record that was kind of correcting all of the mistakes yeah. of the previous album and like yeah i mean that's like it almost felt like it's like i have to do this and they talk about that in the documentary mm-hmm. where this really became like a you know, there wasn't really any reason for them to do this, that record at all, Lost Time. Uh, but it was like, I have to prove this to myself, you know, which I, which I resonated a lot with as, you know, just like, a you know, being in a band that's like technically it's like no one, you know, the, the bigger world doesn't care about, you know, not even like a woe is me kind of thing. It's like mm-hmm. no one's really asking you for another album. You know, and so for them to kind of like lose that big backing and then kind of like be off on their own, like I, I felt, you know, it's because I'm I like personally I'm recording an album that doesn't have label support right now, and so it was kind of like a lot of the feeling of the album was like, oh, we, I want to prove to myself that I can do it. So 
that was like the most like heartening thing on that documentary, which, you know, a lot of the documentary ends up being like concert footage, but we Mm -hmm. can, we can kind of come back to that. (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, I guess like it's, do you, I, I guess the thing that I thought of from the get go was like, do you find that you, do you like find yourself like looking for these like kind of stories that, haven't been told like with like mega city Four brainiac yeah you know is that like does that seem like a personal obsession of yours to kind of like like oh i know that we're supposed to and you know it's like we all like the pavements and things like that yeah it's like do you feel that almost like a personal journey of yours well you know i think it's always been cool um as a music fan in general like i think for a lot of people definitely for someone like my age who grew up on the internet i had access to a lot of things Mm -hmm. so the kind of music I liked stuff like pavement and all of those kind of like the nineties indie rock stuff. By the time I was mid high school, I had already heard it all. You know what I mean? Like by the time I was in high school, I already listened to a lot of the bands I already liked. So because as I got older, it did mean one those bands that really stuck with me meant something, but two finding something that's right up my alley that I hadn't heard already, you know, that spoke to me perfectly. That was already always kind of like a special moment too. So yeah, I think it is sometimes a session to kind of find those hidden bands. And I have always found myself to connect more with the, um, you know, with the guy, with the little guys, you know, the people that didn't get, you know, the time of day in their time. I feel like I've always been able to connect with that. And I think a lot of times it comes out in the music too. Like, you know, cause I think a lot of those bands, they have something interesting to them that makes them different from, you know, the other bands of their time, which for whatever reason, you know, meant they didn't stick to the overall, um, like you said, the big world kind of thing. For example, 12 Rods, there's like, I can compare a couple bands that sound like them-ish, you know, like some people say Lost Time kind of sounds like Dismemberment Plan a little bit. Like, there's some comparisons you can make, but overall they kind of sound like themselves. You know, there's there's not a ton of stuff that sounds like it. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think I do um, seek after bands like that that have a little bit more of a uh, um, I think I appreciate a big swing. I appreciate something different. Yeah, I, I think I found myself listening to them trying to, like, see those things that seem similar. I, some of the reviews were but also it feels like it's kind of empty where people would be like, oh, he sounds like Ozzy. You know, and I'm like, that's like do you just have like three references? Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, you know, like sometimes though I did feel like he did sing in a way that's like the promise ring guy, you know, mm. but like, I don't think that's like a scene they would have at all been tied to, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that was kind of interesting, but it's like, it wasn't because of an influence. I don't assume like what's interesting about these type of bands that kind of get given these opportunities is, you know, and, and it's like, sorry if any of the people that are in the band hear this. It's like, but it, but it's not even to their detriment. It's like, they're not built for that system. You know, right. it's like when it's like, they say it in the documentary, like how much they were given. It's like $1.7 million per, you know, separation anxieties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, most of that went to Todd Rundgren. Um, <laughs> and, but it's like, it's, it starts being like a conversation of like art versus commerce. And that doesn't right. mean like a commerce thing could be bad, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's like he, you know, it's like he sings in a certain way and then they write about certain things and it's like, they can't, I don't know if they would be capable to get out of their own way to kind of write hits. If it, if a hit happened, it would almost be accidental 
And mm-hmm. I think a lot of bands are that. We don't really have the foresight. We're not like, you know, rivers with like a spreadsheet. You know, like most yeah. of us are like, just what comes out comes out. And like super talented dude, you know, the main, you know, the singer guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like they're not built for like hits in that way. And then the, the people come ar- away from these <laughs> situations feeling like they're like failures. And any other situation, like if they had kind of like, stayed in a sense of like let's say they had like a somewhat okay opportunity like if, if it's like you put out a record on polyvinyl it's pretty mm-hmm. big for any of us that's huge but like if if then that didn't work out i don't feel like you leave that feeling like as big of like a failure you know because like it's like you're put in a system that's kind of told you essentially it's still a even though this is a uh, you know album from 2000 it's still like that radio idea you know, yeah. so it's interesting to kind of like think of them that way. Well, yeah, and that was kind of like they talk about this not only a documentary, but there's a couple of interviews I've listened to from the singer Ryan Olcott, and there's also if you have the DVD version of the documentary, there's a good commentary track on there where it's the director of the movie and then the singer Ryan and then um, the keyboardist Ev, and they talk a lot about that. At one point, Ryan, the singer, says exactly what you just said. He was like. You know, I wish I could have got an actual strong singer to sing these songs. You know, he's like, I feel like I was able to write something that I wasn't able to perform in the way that I, I think would have worked. You know, he's like, I think if maybe we let, you know, maybe if I got out of my own way and had a singer, we would have been rock stars, you know. So I think you're right. Like, I think some like I think they agree with that, that maybe they didn't. Um, you're right. They couldn't get out their own way. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I think you're saying the stuff with the radio, you know, they they talk about that once again in the documentary, which if you're listening to this, you should watch the documentary. It's really good. We're mostly going to, we're going to talk a lot about it. Um, But they talk about how um, the label, the, when it was dropped, it was just because they couldn't get them on the radio, you know? And I mean, this is year 2000 and a couple years, you know, Wilco would put out Yankee, you know, and these other bands who also were no longer on the major label, you know, um, atmosphere we're going independent. We're doing things fully, you know, online, you know, and radio was less and less of a thing. So sometimes it feels like maybe they were like maybe either a little too soon or a little too late. You know what I mean? In terms of when they were like, because like the music they're making, like this was still in the era when labels were throwing crazy amounts of money, you know, at, um, at bands. But at the same time, They'll, they'll throw all this money and they'll do this crazy crap like, you're going to be the new ecstasy. You're going to be the new ecstasy. We're going to have you go record Todd Rundgren. We're going to spend all this money. We're going to fly to Hawaii. You know, they, it's this excessive crap. And then it doesn't work out. And then they take it, you know, it's like, well, guess the band's not profitable. You know, and they drop the band. Yeah. It's just that a weird era of, like, label crap, you know? Yeah, but. it's... Yeah, I, but what other thing I can't, like figure out is like what their kind of like tour schedule was like like where did they play with like i couldn't find a lot of record of them and it's probably out there but it's like opening for other acts and things because it kind of feels like it's like the label invested all this money and kind of just turned their backs on the the documentary mentions this but pretty early into it like i feel like they never really got a legitimate push because what even happens in like the story of like Jimmy World? It's like you, they couldn't get them on radio, but they were still like willing to like let it do whatever it's gonna do on the road, you know. So it's like so I think for like a big label, it was like 
let's just buy him a van and we'll just kind of get him out of her hair. But that's not even the story with 12 rods. It's like, I can't find a lot of that tour history. Yeah. Well, you made a good point earlier when you talked about the promise ring and you said how, well, I don't think they would have been in that scene. I think an interesting thing to think about is I don't really think they were in any scene because I think you're right. You can't really find like you'll they'll talk about some bands they've played with on stuff on the um, on the commentary track and some other stuff. And all the bands they've mentioned, I've never really heard of. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it's not really that like and bands like Jimmy World, you know, they did, you know, the stuff. Their first split was with. Now I'm blanking on the band, but um, Christy Front Drive. Yeah, it was Christy Front Drive. You know, which is yeah. also in its own in its own world a legendary band. You know, so yeah. a lot of those bands that back then play together, you know, all of them kind of have a footprint or an atmosphere you've heard of. They didn't really seem to be as much of a with a scene. Now they might have in Minneapolis where they were from. You know, yeah. like the, there's probably a local scene that we, me and you, just don't know about. Yeah. But you're right. I think as a national kind of um, scene, I don't think there was was one for this kind of music. Yeah, I a lot of times locally, what kind of happens, and this is, I mean, I, I've never been a band that's able to do it. In some ways, I wish I did. You have these bands that are like strong local bands. And like mm-hmm. everyone loves this, like a, that local band. And then they get these opportunities. And then I think like sometimes when these bands go out on the road because they're getting so much love from their hometown, they almost like fold on the road because like it's like the truth of like what because they kind of mentioned in the documentary, which I think we'll just keep repeating throughout <laughs> the thing. Um, you know, they it's like they did the thing that any of us would have done. Like we go out and play to five people and it's like, if they were drawing well in their hometown, which it seems that they were, especially in like Oxford, Ohio Mm -hmm. while they were still, but that's like, they were high schoolers. You know, it's almost like a given that it's like, if there's a show when I was in high school, we're going to it. Oh yeah. You know, if it's other like high school bands or anything really. And Mm -hmm. so when you kind of move outside of that, cause there, there was stories of like, you know, it was like, oh, we went from like Minneapolis to New York to do a showcase. And it's like that feels like very and this isn't like a that feels very local band. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you kind of just drive straight to New York and you see if that opportunity can happen. Like, you know, um, it was just that kind of foresight. So, I, I mean, I'd be happy if someone like proved wrong and they <laughs> show me yeah. like instances that they're on tours because, you know, I'm I'm curious of it. And I'm not saying this band didn't tour. It's just like. Mm. You know, it's just it's interesting because I I think when bands like this, if they're able to catch some sort of something on the road, it kind of allows I think it would the story would have been a lot different, you know, like because I think it even sustained a band like Jimmy World to the point that they found what they needed to. And I'm not saying their trajectory would have been the same, but I feel like they would have found their people. Yeah. No. Yeah, I think you. I think you're right in that way. I think sometimes it almost kind of comes into like the major label thing. Sometimes breaking up the ecosystem, you know, because it's like instead of having kind of a grassroots kind of community and like more like you're on tour, you have these big corporations coming in throwing money at you to do a certain thing, so you listen to them, you know, and you go do the thing, and then the thing doesn't work and they just leave you out to dry, you know. When when a lot of bands that stay independent and then you know sit tour because I know Twelve Runs did tour a bit. I. I don't know if they did it that extensively because I don't think they necessarily enjoyed it. Um, But the, um, yeah, I think there is something where back then you still had labels signing small bands. You know, you had big labels making million dollar deals off of EPs, which, and me and your land, that sounds insane. You know what I mean? Like, like the small labels that put out tapes in the current world don't do that. You know what I mean? Like even that, they have to have more interest. So, 
it's 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 weird and i said this i said this earlier but like with the kind of label thing of like they did that first album after the ep split personalities and it did pretty well critically but didn't make a big splash in terms of commercially so from an interview i've read of ryan he's kind of talking about how they were they kept being on this big like Oh, y'all are gonna be the new ecstasy. You're gonna be the new ecstasy, which to me tells me where the whole Todd Rundgren thing came from, because you know he famously you know yeah. produced Skylarking. But this is when it gets to me to once again the label crap is one. The Skylarking sessions are infamously horrible. Like Todd Rundgren was on Mark Maron in 2016 calling Andy Partridge a pussy. So yeah. like, like those were infamously like bad. And it's not like Todd Rundgren hasn't done flops before. You know, mm-hmm. that that one Tubes album he did is infamously kind of like a train wreck and ruined the band commercially. So the fact that the label, which I'm guessing might have just been some business school grad guy who listened to one My Bloody Valentine album and decided he, you know, was the future of independent music. He's like, oh, I have these crazy ideas. You know, we're going to do this with a band. Like, they paid all this money to send them to Hawaii to record Todd Rundgren, who didn't even have a studio and didn't even know how to use Pro Tools. Like, like, yeah, a lot of that is on Todd Rungard for not being professional, but a lot of that's on the label for not planning anything properly. It just, like, and at the end of the day, it was the band that, you know, that had to eat the cost. And yeah. Yeah. that's the sad part to me. What's interesting is, I mean, like, V2 Records is Richard Branson's, like, label, like, mm-hmm. of, you know, Virgin. And so... Yeah, I'm trying to like think of other bands that were on V2 because I feel like I have, I have records by V2 bands, but okay, I mean like better than Ezra, yeah, uh, Black Keys, Block yeah. Party. Um, I'm also just trying to think. I mean, there's yeah, so Ray Davies, uh, the band <laughs> Dope, uh, Granddaddy was on V2, and I think that's the one yeah. I'm thinking of. Uh, that's actually a band I could actually compare to 12 Rods. That's interesting. I hadn't thought yeah. about them. And Jesus person. and Mary Chain had a record on V2. So, I mean, I feel like it's like Amy Mann. They kind of had like a lane that they were trying to do. Like Not A Surf was on there, Mercury Rev. Well, that's the thing interesting with like Mercury Rev. It's like usually, usually I feel like when a band kind of gets their moment, you can kind of see because of like tour posters and stuff. It's like they get inserted into the ecosystem, mm-hmm. whether or not it takes off for them. It's like, if I look at like 2000 uh, posters from like 2001, 2002, like, you know, if it's like a Wilco thing, there's like one that I was looking at today. It was like Wilco Mercury rep. And it's almost like anything in O2, that kind of time frame that Mercury rep put out a, a record their their labels are really pushing it. And that's where I'm saying like, I don't remember anything where 12 rods got those kind of opportunities. And, you know, so it's like, you know, it's like an answer that, you know, we don't have an answer to that kind of question, but back to like the Todd Rundgren thing, it's that whole story is so wild. Like the fact that if we're talking about a company owned by Richard Branson, like, and are just like the actual label. So it's like, we spelled out kind of the bands that are, that were on it. So Mm -hmm. this is a legitimate label and they just sent a band gave a third of one i think it was a third they said of 1.7 yeah. million dollars so i can't do math well so i'm not going to try a lot of money a lot of money <laughs> um and to Kauai, uh to a to a guy that had no i feel like you would be like so you have a studio right 
Like, that would be one of those things. And I know that this was like, I mean, it was 2000. So if we're saying 99, it's like they had semblance of the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, or if at the very least they had phones and fax. You know, you would assume you would probably fax him over some, you know, uh, contracts and things if he only, like, stays in Kauai. But they never checked if he actually had a studio. So then they have to go and, like, find a place. And also, he's never officially used Pro Tools. It just seemed to be that he knew that Pro Tools existed because they had to, like, teach him. Mm-hmm. And it's like... <laughs> It's it's what's funny is like essentially then at the end result they get penalized for it and dropped, but it's like somebody else. I mean maybe they did. Someone else at the label should have definitely lost their job for that yeah. to be able to sign off on one point seven million dollars and not have any clue of where that money is kind of being allocated to is, you know, I mean I it I sound like a business guy over here, but it's like. It's just wild. Like, in these situations, I think, okay, then give my band $500,000. Like, if you don't give a shit, then -hmm. just, like, give it to really anybody. It doesn't matter. These are all just tax write-offs then. You know, I don't know. But it's just just wild. And they were talking about, you know, in the documentary that he was just, like, playing crossword puzzles. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorites. That is one of my favorite stories in the documentary. But then when I listen to the commentary track, there's another story that killed me. Because apparently they show up to the studio and one, like you said, they're kind of teaching me how to use Pro Tools. He's spending two weeks like online, like on the phone with the help desk at Pro Tools. And um, Ev from 12 Rods is like, and I already knew how to use uh, Pro Tools. And I know how hard it is to get in touch with those helpline people. But he would call and they'd pick up the phone right away. And they would like overnight him like, you know, hard drives and stuff. And apparently one point Todd went up to them like, oh, what are y'all's amps? These are really cool. And 12 Rods were early adopters of like the digital modeling amps. So they were early adopters of what would be line six. I think it was like Axe or whatever was the original names. And Todd was like, oh, that's really cool. And by the end of the recording sessions, he was sponsored. <laughs> so, so like, so really the person that seemed to really benefit from this whole thing was Todd Rudgren. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Like, <laughs> I mean, getting, getting, I'm, I'm just going to say it's what, $300,000. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it would be more than that. Uh, but essentially getting $300,000 to just like hang out near your home. And then they said he was always the last person there. And the first person to leave. I mean, it's like, I'm at an age where I'm like, good for you, Todd Rundgren. You know, it's like, it's not good on the benefit of this record. And I understand 100% why they hate him and hated working with him. (laughs) But I'm like, damn. It also feels like this should have been the end of the story of Todd Rundgren. And it was not. But it is not, because like you said, and I've listened to that Mark Marin episode, yeah. uh, he's still very much kicking around doing projects and just being Todd Rundgren. And for that, I mean, I salute him for. Uh, but for this, it's like, this record is not... Well, they were also talking about, like, they would just go in and kind of edit their own stuff at the mm-hmm. end of the night. It's like... And there's also a point where I believe, uh, I assume it was Chris McGuire at the time, like he he, he left before the end of the recording. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I mean, it's like if you think of recording in every instance, it's like I assume his parts were done first, so it's... I mean, they had drums done. So so I wonder, do you know any more insight to that? So I was actually thinking about that today, and I actually have a CD copy of Separation Anxieties with me today so I could read the insert. Because I was interested, because to uh, the after Chris McGuire left, the drummer they would get is Dave King from The Bad Plus. Any mm-hmm. drummer listening to this probably just creamed their jeans. That's like one of the biggest drummer drummers yeah. around. But um, he's on, like he's credited but from what it can seem here, I don't think he played on the record. Okay. Like, they put, like, uh, 12 Rods is, and Dave King is in that. But at one point they put, Chris McGuire plays drums on tracks 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And then it just says additional sampled or uh, you know, electronic drums by Ev. Uh-huh. So. I'm pretty sure Dave King didn't play on this album. I think he was just in the band by the time the album came out, so they still had him on the, um, you know, the literature and all of that. Yeah, and but, you were you were saying um, at some point that they had like a drum machine era of the band. I know we're kind of switching off, oh, yeah. of, <laughs> but I was like, I I didn't see anything about that. A picture I sent you was just like basically that huge synth on the on that angle kind of like they're like children about them uh kind of thing (laughs) but it was just obscuring the drummer but the drummer was there in that but Mm. you were i didn't know they had a drum machine there there is a couple live videos you can find of them doing they did like some radio show and it was with a drum machine and it's really weird because this was in the time of separation anxieties and some of the songs they play in that session would later be on lost time so it's interesting mm-hmm. that those songs were from the Separation Anxieties era, but they had a drum machine, I guess, just in that kind of time period before they had a, you know, a, a drummer out. It sounded weird. The energy was kind of gone. It was in. I mean, I appreciate the effort. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it is a weird. It was kind of a weird um, thing. But the uh, in the commentary, the director of the documentary is like, yeah, I had to leave that out. I just didn't have enough like. There wasn't enough time in the documentary to talk about the drum machine. So. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I don't have to add a documentary, and I think this guy did a fine job, but it's like yeah. could have cut some of the performances. And, you know, because I, I kept like I wanted – what I'm saying is like I wanted kind of more of that. But it's crazy, like it's wild to me, like why were bands filming so much? Like it's it's like we have cameras in our pockets – and I feel like I forgot to record, like, most of my recording process. Like, and I should have. I don't know what I would have done with it. Probably nothing. But it's like they would have – there wouldn't have been any assumption that anything would have happened with that footage. But they were – there's a ton of, like – I don't know what bands are doing. Like, do you feel like when you go in the studio, are you, like, recording things that you can share later? If you look at the music video for Wish Kits Miller Light, um, for our song Miller Light, um, it's like all footage I took during the recording of our, our EP in the, like, in the studio and stuff. So I did that. But uh, I also think you mentioned the phone. I think it's kind of like if you live next door to the uh, Empire State Building, you're never going to go there. Yeah. Like, yeah, we have our phones on us. But like because of that, you don't really think to use it for a camera. But back then, like cameras were still like exciting you film all the stuff you keep memories like that's kind of the way you did it so it is interesting that is a good point (laughs) it's just strange because it's like this is i mean to most people this is like a random band you know but it's like we have this footage i mean like even like just like regular documentaries like this family and they're like why were they filming like why do we even have this footage like 
for the sake of this documentary, great. But like, you know, it's like every every like true crime documentary. It's like, well, I get. I feel like if you if you're recording your family that much, then you're probably a murderer. Like it's like <laughs> like that's the only thing because it's like they always have way too much footage because it's like. I don't know, or I'm just revealing that my parents didn't love me or something. I was going to say, like, or you, like, I went to my girlfriend's family's home in um, Kansas City recently, and in it, they had these huge boxes of just tons of, like, uh, you know, like, um, instant camera photos and stuff like that, and there's, like, hundreds, and a lot of them, it's really funny, her dad took some really bad photos, and it's just funny that, like, back then, it's like, yeah, you just had a film camera, and you took a billion pictures, now you wouldn't really imagine doing that. But yeah, I don't know. I think I think things have just changed. But yeah, I think maybe your parents were just different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's even times where like I'll go home and my dad would be like, "Here, here's a picture of you as a baby," and I'm like, "That's clearly my brother." Like, <laughs> and it's like you know, I mean, but it's like a family of you know five kids, well, three step siblings, and I think eventually after like a long line, you just kind of like you're like, I don't know, we have pictures of the other ones, it'll be fine, you know. So so it's not something that feel it feels foreign to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um uh, sorry to anyone whose parents like love you. And, <laughs> you know, like I, I was kind of with asking like who like who else do you know that's like a big fan of this band? And the one I discovered, which was interesting, I think it's on the Wikipedia page, like Justin Vernon mm-hmm. uh, is a big fan of the band. Like he said, I think one of the quotes was like he sold. 95% of his record collection, but he made sure that he kept every like 12 rods thing he had. Yeah. Okay. So like, yeah. I mean, and they're, and they're famously the first 10 out of 10 on pitchfork. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. they've kind of fallen into scuberty now, but uh, there was a point in time when they were like, you know, a up and coming indie band. They just never really got past that point. But now they're kind of having a little bit of like a zoomer resurgence, which I love. Like, there's, like, if you search the words 12 Rods on Twitter right now, you see a bunch of teenagers of anime profile pictures. And I think it's hilarious and great. They all really like that song, um, I Wish You Were a Girl, off of Split Personalities, which makes sense. I think in the, tar- you know, in the era where um, people are embracing um, their sexuality and stuff of that point, you know, I think a band that did that in the 90s, I, I see why that would resonate with people. Um, another, uh, a big fan of them of note, uh, Riley Walker tweets about them all the time yeah. and, and just posted, uh, just put a, at the time of recording this, I guess this is dating this, but just, uh, put out shirts he designed for them. So that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Cause they are like, uh, they're reunited again. Kind uh, of. So kind of. Okay. I, I follow Ryan on Facebook. One, he's hilarious on Facebook. He's also very depressing on Facebook, but <laughs> he has said he is, he's recording a new 12 rods album. He's doing it all himself. Mm-hmm. So I say reuniting is maybe a strong word, but he is making a new 12 rods album. If we ever see it, I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it's kind of like the, as someone who's had both of the, uh, the songwriters of the Rins on your podcast, I'm sure we could talk about, Sometimes it takes a long time if you just let yourself have infinite time to complete a record. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in. I mean, I'm in many versions of that band. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's like as I'm in a band that it has taken like four to five years between records. You know, so in some way I'm like I understand it, but I also know that the level of fixations that it seems like, you know, the Rens or mm-hmm. Twelve Rods would have on their own material, <laughs> like. I, 
it does seem like to be a kind of ongoing kind of story that I it's it's weird like I feel like these people look back and are like if only you would have done it different we would have been huge yeah and I'm like but it you never will because you're always the same person <laughs> you know, like it's like you're never gonna get out of your own way and also I don't feel like and it's kind of back to the original discussion it's like to me. 12 rods or the wrens like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's like i mean it's like when jawbox got signed to like a big label i feel like they understood what they were there for they understood the whole picture you know and that i don't think a lot of bands do it's like when every mm-hmm. younger band gets signed to victory records you know yeah. and they're like we got signed or it's like there's so many labels now that you know that we know of that are not victory records that i feel like when i see a band i'm like god bless you i hope this works out well for you but they they don't know and it's Mm -hmm. it's not that strange to not know so it feels like like a band like jawbox understood that in a way that they were like just going to be given this money and then they're going to be told to leave you know but like it feels like even like the wrens or 12 rods like they believed that it was going to happen for them. But what's fucked up is like, I guess if we're in a different reality where it did work out for them, then it's, it's like when someone comes to you and they're like, if you were in a successful band and they're like, Hey, can you tell me everything you know about being a successful band? And then people give you advice, but it's like, it's just kind of luck. I think they talk about that in oh, the yeah. documentary that's I, too. That's it's, what I was going to say. Um, yeah. Ev, the keyboard player, I, I think this is kind of almost kind of the climax of the documentary, I'd say, or whatever. He says, you know, okay, well, what makes, you know, what makes you successful? Okay, talent. Oh, that's cool. I have talent. You know, that's awesome. I already have it. Cool. Hard work. I could work hard, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. third is luck. What the hell is luck? How do you, you know, you can't measure that. You know what I mean? Like there's always going to be just that, you know, that, sense of an unknown you know factor to it that yeah you could think well if i did this thing the one way you know maybe things would be different but like maybe something else would have been different at that point you know what i mean there's i think that's to me why the stories of quote-unquote failure can be more interesting than stories of success because it's just where did where were those random factors you know where did that stuff come into play and it's sad when it means people whose music I really, really enjoy. For example, in this situation, Ryan Olcott, I think he's one of my favorite songwriters. The stuff he's done after 12 Rods, like Mystery Palace and Sea has still been really amazing stuff. He will never fully be, you know, recognized for it. And that's, you know, and that's sad to me. But I think um, sometimes I got to remember that that's probably the majority of people, you know, a majority of musicians I like didn't get their due. You know, and very few people yeah. actually get there. Yeah, I think that we live in a current climate, too, that, I mean, a lot of these kind of things we're mentioning were, like, before their time. Like, I feel like it mm. would be easier for people to kind of, like, find their people, even if it's not physical people at a show. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess in this situation, their monthly listeners would be blah, blah, blah if they yeah. were a current band. And so that would, like, tell them blank. You know, whatever. It's like it's it's funny to even think about like it's like modern lovers being like a band that mm. like a record label was just like this is gonna be the next big thing. But it's like you're always he's always gonna be Jonathan Richmond. Like there's nothing he can do about that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's you know, it's like Paul Westerberg is always going to be Paul Westerberg, and he's like the best example of any of these things. I was going to say I that, think that yeah. he knows. He, I think he actually knows how to write a hit song and has done it. And you know, to be even like uh, what animated movies? What's Over the Hedge? He has a song uh, in that was that was <laughs> Ben Folds over the um he did uh open season oh, open season okay <laughs> which rocks I joke oh, that is the, I joke yeah. that open I don't want to get them mixed last. up yeah oh yeah well I joke that open season is the last replacements album because <laughs> because Tommy Stinson plays bass on it oh okay so yeah. I say like the open season soundtrack is the last replacements album but yeah over the hedge with Ben Folds I think it's important to mm-hmm. separate all of our uh, mid two thousands indie yeah. rock people playing on animated movies for some reason. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like even when you get to that, it's like if we think about that era, I mean, we can do this. We could do this forever. So I'll just do it for a second. It's like, why wasn't Ben Lee? You know, why Mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, and why was, you know, it'd be like, why was Jason Mraz over uh, Ben Queller or something, you know? And it's like, I don't I don't know. You know, it's you know, but it's like with this specifically, though, with separation anxieties, it's like. And I'm not even saying it's like a, some of it is a product of Todd Rundgren not doing anything on this record, because mm-hmm. when you listen to Lost Time, it's like, oh, I think that's what he wanted to do. That's yeah. what he wanted to land on with the melody. That's what because there's mm-hmm. like things that I was like in for V2 in the year 2000. I'm surprised that they and these are things I'm totally fine with on records. Like I don't mm-hmm. you know, it's like these are like our friends bands are even like better but it's like there's like there's like imperfections that I wouldn't have expected to have passed on a major label scale. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I personally don't give a shit, but when I'm looking at like this distance, well, for the sake of doing a podcast, it's like mm-hmm. I start thinking about those things and it's like somebody was just like just signing off on all of these things. So you, you see the stories of like even like Nirvana, even after they had like a big huge hits obviously mm. and then the label's like no you have to remix this but it's like well then where was that guy with v2 <laughs> yeah you know uh because i because it's on the other hand it's like then you're telling me there was like a label that was just like i think this is a document this band wanted to create and i want them to be the artists that they are but that i don't believe that to be true no no yeah. that's not true either. I, absolutely not i agree i think there was label mismanagement here i think that's like the easiest thing to say on it because at the end of the day like i agree with you on lost time that's why i said earlier that some of those lost time songs were supposed to be separation anxiety songs or you know from that era and you can really tell what they were actually trying to do compared to what they got with separation anxieties which like i said i still love this album i think the songs are really good I um and even some of the production stuff I like you know yeah. but I also like weird I like the weirdness so I can kind of understand where like you said on a late major label pass maybe the album shouldn't have sounded like this um but one one thing that I also really think I was thinking about when it comes to this album and it not sticking I think sequencing is strange mm-hmm. I think if they wanted it to be this skylarking style thing that they kept talking about maybe they should have put it more in that kind of order. Cause they started out with, you know, the kaboom, which is like a really loud kind of um, song. And then they have what has happened, which is almost like pop punk. And it's like, it's not till the third or fourth song. And or yeah, about fourth. Yeah. Fourth and fifth and sixth song. Do you get to like kind of the calm kind of atmospheric songs that I think that's why they wanted to send them to Todd Rundgren. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I think some of the sequencing maybe is a little odd. Um, 
It's it's strange. I uh, I think the label just didn't necessarily know what they were doing, and then when it didn't, when it obviously didn't pan out, they went, "Welp," and, yeah, you know, and then just dropped them, and which is sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like from a listener perspective, like once again, and I'm kind of just repeating myself. I want this record to be exactly how it is. <laughs> like yeah. it's Same. like you know, but it's like I don't, you know, when you get to like your secret safe with me i'm like mm. or even if i'm just thinking of things and i know it was common for the time frame and i think i comment on this like every episode but this album is 52 minutes and 48 seconds like That's long it's yeah. very long and there's a point by about like track eight and it's not necessarily like what tracks you keep but it's like it could be over you know <laughs> like it's right. like it this this album could lose a couple songs and be stronger in my opinion Mm -hmm. and once again they had more success than i did so uh take that as you will but in that regard like what if you were to cut i'll say one song but if you were to cut two songs what do you feel like you would cut oh man i that's hard (laughs) well yeah you Um, work for v2 and you're like okay well here's another thing that's funny too before you answer that question is the fact that (laughs) for there to be like and there, the other songs would be those kind of radio singles, but it's like there's like seven minute long songs on this record. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I think that's great, you know. But it's like yeah. So so I guess if you if you're able to answer that question, possibly the two. If I was the if I was the label guy, it would be you gotta go and everybody. So eight and nine, which are songs I definitely like. Um, I de- like I said, as a, from a listener perspective, I I will let this album stay as it is. But I think because you gotta go is one of the long ones. Um, I think that might trim the album a little bit to make it maybe a little more um, um, digestible. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the weird things about that when you're talking about like you know the bands and or sorry the label and all that, the fans didn't like it either. So sometimes it's thinking like it not yeah. only did not have you know a um, you know a wider range, but you know people who liked their previous music also didn't like this album for whatever reason. Yeah, in, so. in a in a you know twenty twenty three stance, I was thinking because the watching the documentary for some reason I got in my head like oh well maybe they kind of told the fans like their situation but I'm like it would have basically been not impossible but pretty hard for them to kind of express yeah. all of that quickly to the ba- to their fans by the time it came out so I was like no well that couldn't have been the case they you know because I was wondering if sort of the bad taste left in the band's mouth. Uh, about the situation could have like spread to fans and maybe eventually but i don't think that would have been the case at the time like you know i don't think like that sort of like sourness would have like made people be like no i don't like this album either yeah so no yeah hey from from some stuff i've read on the reviews on this specific album people have some people have directly criticized they Todd Rundgren sheen as they call it okay because they said like there is like a level of just like grease he kind of puts on it all that I think some people didn't like um maybe because it's like even like songs like what has happened in marionette I feel like if those songs were on lost time they would sound a lot less silly maybe like I think there is maybe a like a level of goofiness those songs kind of have that like maybe they wouldn't have if they were if they had full control of the songs who knows you know it's one of those we could sit here all day and you know 
think what happened, what has happened, LOL. Um, but, yeah. you know, I don't, it's weird. It's such an interesting thing, but I do love this album. And I think it's one that um, I always appreciate. Like I said, I like big swings. I like weird stuff. And one thing mm-hmm. about this album that's interesting to me is in 2023, if you have this rock band that has, you know, synth elements and 80s style and, you know, very like some like deep electronic moments, you're not going to record that at a big, you know, giant studio with a, you know, a third of a million dollars. You're going to make it in your, you know, in your bedroom on Pro Tools, you know, or on Logic or something. You know what I mean? Like you're not. So albums like this don't get made anymore. And I think that makes it a lot interesting too, is like Todd Rundgren isn't going to do some indie rock band with the, you know, with the crazy synth stuff. Like that's not something we're going to get like that anymore. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like there's so many things about this band where I was like, do they kind of realize like how that comes across? Like, was there any sort of like, maybe the commentary track like tells me, but it's like, I couldn't get a sense of like, if they were in on the joke. So like with like the way that they like did the synth, you know, mm-hmm. like those, those kind of aesthetic things. Like when I think of bands, like, you know, like, uh, like, like jellyfish and, and it's just like those things that I feel like, don't occur to these people at the time like visually how this potentially looks like i personally think it's cool but like i feel like if you went on a late night show and your synth is like at the you know children of bodom angle you Mm. know it's you know it looks a certain way (laughs) i mean you're right but i mean at this point in general doing synths and doing you know like more electronic focused stuff i mean this was 1999 that was not cool you know what i mean or when they started you know in the mid 90s you know, I hate, you know, I don't like usually the um, the fallacy that comes out where people say, like, Nirvana just changed everything and suddenly it was all grunge. It wasn't all grunge, but it was still a lot of grunge. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. keyboards were not cool anymore, you know? Yeah. And, you know, 80s, when it was like everyone's getting digital and hit all the simps, 90s, you're back to tube amps and loud, you know, and, like, only guitars only. So they were going against the grain a little bit, and I think they knew that. Like, I think they absolutely knew, like, we're going to do our thing and i think that's why them being considered like a post new wave band or whatever like i think they leaned into that a little bit and i think they knew that but i think they also had confidence in their music yeah eventually that would come back yeah and i think what's what's interesting with like mentioning dismemberment plan are like any of the things like a you know a discord band or whatever kind of label would have been right for them they would have definitely it's it's crazy to think that like if you were on and i don't even know how many records (laughs) this album sold if they were on whatever the minneapolis equivalent of discord was at the Mm -hmm. time like if this were i know it's not minneapolis but if this were touch and go this band could have been a runaway success for like a smaller label yeah you know and so that's it's interesting to think i mean it just didn't happen of course but like i think that if history would have allowed them to be a band that like plays with dismemberment dismemberment plan then I think like people would have remembered them different because once that in this time frame in the year 2000, kind of that leftover thing from the 90s would have been like once you're signed to a major label, I feel like trying to fit into that scene is like a stink, you know? Like yeah. it's like if you kind of go, you can't go backwards if you accept it. No, yeah. you're right, and um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, no, yeah. no. You're right, and it's funny, once again, the commentary track of the documentary that we just keep talking about. They talk about apparently Dismemberment Plan didn't really like them. Apparently yeah. they did get brought up once, and Dismemberment Plan was kind of like, 
oh yeah that band you know whatever because i think because by then they'd gone the major label route they weren't cool you know what i mean like i think you're right they couldn't go back you know and um i think you're right there eventually funny enough though on i think it's the people versus dismemberment plan or whatever that remix album they have um the remix of the city that's on that is by ev from 12 rods so no. there there is some dismemberment dismemberment plan 12 rods of connection there somewhere but i think you're right i think if maybe they stayed smaller instead of ever going bigger you know maybe they could have had more longevity would they have still been as broke as they were at the end of their run originally yeah but i think when you go from you know that that massive up and down that goes from being on a big label getting you know multi-million dollars and then being broke maybe it's a little less of a uh, jarring thing than just always being broke <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but you it's know. like, you know, I get it in the sense of, like, if someone's like, hey, this box has a million dollars in it, and this other box has, you know, it's like uh, yeah. annual payouts. You're going to take a million dollars. You know, uh, eventually, but th- th- this other one's like, you know, not as sexy, but, like, it's payouts, and I swear it will eventually <laughs> equal $1 million. You're just going to take the million dollars. Yeah, of course. You know, so it's like it's just like a lottery thing. Like I don't, yeah. I wouldn't say anything different. So it's like, I no. can, I, I have, I have a podcast, you know? So it's like, <laughs> I can, you know, I can just say these things, but I, given the thing, I'm going to take the shiny object, you know, like it's, right. it's a, it's just a human thing. I I've seen people that have sort of done that like smart thing where a way that we see it on a smaller label or level, I'll mm-hmm. talk about labels in a second, is that I think I've seen younger people be like, I would never give away my, uh, you know, the rights to my album. And then you're like, I mean, great for you if you do that. And I've seen it like pay off for bands, but I've also seen it just not pay off because on the other hand, and we're not even talking about a million dollars, if a, if a, if a label that has some sort of, notoriety uh on well in a positive sense you hope tells you like hey you get all this distribution we'll give you money to like go in the studio and stuff but like we basically own your record forever you're like i probably was never gonna make money anyways so that's kind of on y'all um so i'm gonna sign this little piece of paper and you just do it (laughs) you know but like on the other hand i guess it's like the thing is like I don't imagine that I would believe in myself enough that I would be able to build a business not pushed by someone else. You know, as someone who has spent many, many years in DIY, I just don't mm-hmm. see it happening. You know, so so it's like, once again, it's really just I would have taken the money too, and I would have, I would have. Yeah, I think any of us, even after hearing this story, if I was in a situation, and I could record with Todd Rundgren. I would do the exact same thing as them, but also with knowing that he might be doing crossword puzzles the whole time. Yeah. 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 I would maybe also take a friend that would be an engineer. Cause that seems like a silly step that it's like, there wasn't even an engineer there. Like that could be like, cause usually in the situations we hear of like your Rick Rubens and stuff like mm-hmm. that, they get the credit, but there's some very capable guy that knows how these programs work that goes yes mr runger and i will do that and then slide you know knows how to actually mm-hmm. do that thing so a lot of times those producers of the scale and i'm telling you something that you definitely know um they're just kind of there to like pray over the material <laughs> like it's like they're not they're kind of this there for like like i'm not saying ian mckay hasn't produced the records he has and he very well could have 
But mm-hmm. I would assume, and even in those situations, you kind of just want that vibe there. You yeah. want someone telling you it's like the right vibe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't know. That's a, I, so I'm saying yeah. I would still go record to Todd Rundgren. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, you said Rick Rubin, and I think there's that interview of Rick Rubin that's out right now where he talks about, like, you know, like, I've, you know, I've gotten far because of my taste. And I think that is kind of what you want mm-hmm. in yeah. those people is you want, you want their taste. You want the vibe, you want their, you know, their knowledge. I think what the band wanted from that, from that situation was, you know, maybe more of a hands-on thing rather than some guy who just didn't give a crap, who was just, you know, taking the money and going. And, you yeah. know, I, so I see, but I agree. I think like one again, how do you know that's how it's going to go? Of course you're going to go yeah, that way. Right. You know what I mean? So like. I mean, it sucks that stuff, you know, happened the way they did. I mean, they've all made great music since D- um, Dave King is extremely successful with the Bad Plus and stuff like that. He's probably the most successful one out of all of them. But they've all made cool music afterwards, and it sucked that, that it didn't be- get to become, you know, make a living off of the music they made like that. But, you know, it, that is sadly the way it goes, and I wish there were more success stories than, you know, these stories, but that's sadly not the case. Yeah. I wanted to kind of bring us back to something we were talking about earlier with like the pitchfork reviews. Like you said, like their EP got like 10, a 10, which is yeah. like crazy. I can't think of like what has made a 10 in like recent history, but I'm not on pitchfork all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that this album, Separation Anxiety, has got a two out of 10, just like the <laughs> drop from one to the other. And so that review was written by Matt LeMay. And then, uh, I believe the, uh, so in exclaim, they also got a bad review for this record. And that was written by Cam Lindsay, but it's just that juxtaposition. And I listened to both like back to back today, mm-hmm. you know, the EP and then this album. And it was like, not really that different to me. I mean, there's That's different I mean. production choices, and it's like I think they lean a little bit more into the idea of like a space rock band because there's more of an effect on his voice. But I'm like, it's not that weird when I feel like when I go to a next album and I feel like a band has dropped that. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't do the space kind of voice that much. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, and I could see a label or even themselves being like, let's actually like try and let your natural voice like, you know, kind of stand mm-hmm. uh, on its own. Um, so it's just like, all I'm saying is like, you know, that's a 37 minute EP and this is 52 minute, like nothing feels different technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, just so I, wild. Yeah. I think, it, I think it, that's what I mentioned. I think it's so bizarre. And that's like, as someone who came to them, like I said, uh-huh. when I came to 12 rods, I had their whole catalog, you know, I didn't have just the EP to go off of, you know, like sometimes people are bad with change if they've liked one album a lot. And then the next album like is, has even a, you know, a sliver of difference. They reject it. But like, I don't really know what it is. Like I've, I've pondered hard on it. Maybe it was the time this was coming out. Cause maybe in 96, mm-hmm something like the EP was more popular in the bunch time 99. Like we're moving on, you know, like maybe that's what it could have been like in terms of that. Yeah. Like it's, it's bizarre. I also think like critical reviews and stuff in general. Like I think in hindsight, that stuff can always seem too harsh. Cause once again, you watch the documentary and you watch the concert footage of it. When they play these songs from this album, everyone's singing along just as much. As they are singing along to the other songs. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like 
when these songs play, people leave. Yeah. So, you know, I think maybe it's just an, it's an example of just people at reacting harshly. And then once one person reacts harshly, then they're also going to react harshly. And it's just kind of this weird, you know, domino. Yeah. Effect. It feels like, uh, I mean, I know it was probably even worse for the band I'm about to mention, but you know, those kind of stories, like I, I grew up in a point where I didn't really realize the context of like the whole jawbreaker thing, you know? And so like, I just got into dear you, like it was mm-hmm. like all just one thing. I could understand that one sounded better than the other, but it's sort of like by the natural way that albums usually work, usually it kind of gets better and better sounding, you know, in in a sense of what they're allowed to do with recording. But I just sort of accepted it all as like one thing. Mm-hmm. And then essentially, you know, I go to like older friends and they're like, you like what? You know, and it's funny because I think like when you have distance from it, and I also feel like a lot of these people, they just kind of heard that they shouldn't like it. And they just probably just went off of that. And then it was like, I don't know. I don't know if this would have touched something like a, you know, maximum rock and roll. But like, it feels almost like that kind of echo chamber where it's like, I was told not to like it. You know, that's what <laughs> I feel like it is too. Cause I mean, like, with Dear You, like now, like, I'm surprised you've met anyone that part- that actually admits to not liking Dear You now. Cause now everyone just acts like they were always the ones that believed in it. You know what I mean? Like, I saw um, Jawbreaker in Denver um, with our friend Javier from Strange Magic. And when we went, it was, um, like, packed, you know, sold out. Mm-hmm. Everyone's singing along to the Dear You songs. It's the Dear You tour. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of those things where it's like, I bet a lot of the people in here were part of those people who pretended to hate it at the time. Or yeah. maybe not pretended, hated it, you know, and then later changed their mind. Like, I can't imagine, you know, that those people all just disappeared. Yeah, with with even like seeing Jawbreaker live, it's like there is a melodicness in those songs. But I feel like when they play them back to back, there's not like a huge like shift there's to not. me. Like it's just all kind of and even like you know back to Twelve Rods. It's like during since a lot of the documentary is a, a reunion concert <laughs> film, mm-hmm. like it's like all of these songs fit together. Yeah, you know. So so yeah, just like it doesn't. It seems like a weird thing i think it's it's good that there's been that kind of distance but even like in the sense of like jawbreaker there's even there's not really these tales of 12 rods of like what we should have so it's even like a smaller sliver that we're even discussing (laughs) right and that Uh reunion show was sold out the one they did in minneapolis but it was like obviously like it's their hometown you know what i mean like it makes sense like if they went and did a show in la would have sold out probably not yeah. You know, I think, like I said, I think they're having resurgence now. But, yeah, this is a much smaller band, and I think they were definitely more important to the people that um, already liked them. You know, the people, like, of that era and regionally. Um, but that's one reason why I'm glad that they're getting a little bit more appreciation now in the era where I think they could have done really well to begin with, which was the online era. Because I think they missed that just by a couple years. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and I guess, like, when I think about, like, your band do you feel like getting into this like has influenced like how you approach songwriting with wish kit like um, do you feel it Any? well i was i was gonna joke with you earlier because you mentioned like mega city four and stuff like that i'm like well you know out of all of the albums i could have given you i could have given you albums that you can actually hear in my um in my own band mm-hmm. you can't really hear 12 rods in my band we don't have a keyboard you know we don't have anything we just have guitars but i mean i do like, I listen to his music a lot. So I think I do take some 
um, ideas and some mel- some melody choices and the way he does things. Um, I think I do take them. I don't think you can necessarily hear it on the EP because on the EP we were going for kind of a specific thing. But on our upcoming record that's going to be out, um, I think you might hear a little bit more of it on some of the stuff. Um, I don't think it's super apparent. I think maybe some of my other influences shine in more. But um, it's one of those things where maybe it's more of a... uh, What's the word? Um, It's like, you know, the S is silent. Like, it's there. Like, you know, the, uh, the inspiration is there. It might not just be super noticeable. Because I don't think anyone can really copy this band too much anyway. I think it's kind of hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, with you saying that the kind of upcoming record, like if you wanted to talk more about that. Yeah. Um, we are currently, we're actually not done recording it, but we do have a record um, that we are currently it's finished writing. And where the EP was trying to be a specific thing, I think we've kind of found our sound more. So going for more of this... Um, I'm just trying to make a just a straightforward rock album. I'm not trying to do anything that's too um, too out there. I think that was one of our problems when we were um, doing the EP is that we all just like going off the hook. So sometimes the EP can be hard to understand what you're listening to in terms of like what is this supposed to be. So I think the album will be a little more straightforward but still have some of our rough edges, which I like to keep. And that is something I kind of take from 12 Rods is kind of be being honestly yourself, not being trying to follow what's necessarily the popular thing at the time. Um, I was talking about this in our shared group chat we're in, but I mean, these days I think we can agree every single band right now is a shoegaze band or has some level yeah. of shoegaze influence, yeah. you know, and we're trying to do kind of more of the straight up college rock thing. Um, and I don't really want to sound like a shoegaze man. So I think that is one thing I would say that we definitely take from 12 Rods is we're trying to make the music we want to make and we're not necessarily going to sacrifice it just for what is currently trendy. I'm not going to have the children of Bodum keyboard or anything, but I mean, um, you should, but I wish honestly, <laughs> we should, we should have talked Bodum after midnight. That would have been a much better uh, album to talk about today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but maybe, maybe next time. Yeah, maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah go the, the, I think what's funny about like the shoegaze resurgence is like, I've been in a band so long that, I feel like we kind of started at the first resurgence and have existed so long into another resurgence and it is making me feel like a thousand years old. Like, like it's, it's wild. And like, it's a hard thing with like that kind of shoegaze thing because it's like, I feel like I just go around being like, well, I don't like shoegaze at all, but that's just like my knee jerk thing. But there's a lot of it that I like that I usually just don't feel like, bands are doing and I, I think even in a sense like you know if i'm thinking about like if you if you were to do a band that's like 12 rods worship i kind of wish more bands did have those like i guess we would call them meandering tracks because mm-hmm. i i feel like that stuff's really fun on record like you know it's yeah. like i i know we talked about like cutting some tracks and stuff but it's like i love that they have a song like your secret safe with me and yeah. i wish that like really bands of all types and maybe my my own but it's like it's it's like sometimes with like the streaming era people feel like every song has to be a single and yeah you know don't just like put out something for the sake of it but Mm -hmm. like in terms of like an album it's really fun to like hear people kind of like stretch out and so sometimes i feel like when i hear like a shoegaze band 
you know, um, that kind of modern equivalent. Like they always want to like have full blast all the time. Yeah. And then it's almost like that, you know, now I sound 90 years old, but it's like when I think about like, you know, Black Sabbath being heavy. Once again, I know I sound 90 years old, um, but like it's not it's it's a lot of times these things are heavy. It's like heavy implied. So I think like sometimes what bands tend to do and it's, it's like I'm just saying dynamics. It's like yeah. it's I feel like there's band, bands that want to be all blast all the time. But if you do it all the time, you end up just like not sounding loud because you never gave anyone the indication that you weren't loud at some point in the set. So I guess I'm saying two different things. I think bands should have more ballads on their albums and I think. <laughs> More bands should like more shoegazy type bands should like fuck around with dynamics a little bit more because that really like allows that stuff to shine through. And also, uh, everyone shouldn't be playing with a fuzz pedal if you're doing shoegaze. Like somebody has to not be fuzzy, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, uh, you know, and no, I didn't I say specific you. bands, so I'm you know. I but it, it, yeah, it's like I think also a lot of times with people when they if you're thinking about ride i feel like had more like alt rock kind of tendencies but a lot of times the bass is kind of like doing everything and everything's a wash so everything can't be a wash you know no i yeah i'm probably i'm telling you something that you know uh it's it's hard to do though it's like it's like when you have an intention i guess like the 12 rods record it's like you you know it's like these people had something in their head and from whatever be it todd rundgren (laughs) they weren't able to get to the finish line and we're, we're all that be it economics or you know uh too many pedals uh end up doing that to us uh you're right yeah, yeah. you're you are right because that's i mean that's the big thing about shoegaze in general it's like like you said like i like a lot of shoegaze bands but i think a lot of them not only i think a lot of it can be it does end up being monotonous and boring i think a lot of it blends together i also think a lot of these bands aren't playing the kind of music they want to make either you know like i think we've we've had people come up to like we play with shoegaze bands and talk to us after and sometimes we'll say to them like man why aren't anyone doing more stuff like y'all are doing and i'm like because you're all y'all are all doing shoegaze so yeah yeah but we're um we have a um this the new music we're putting out the soonest we do have a song coming out on a split at the end of January. So I'm guessing by the time this is out, yeah, it might it'll be, be out. Um, that one, I'm when we recorded that, a big idea of that was like, I want to hear all the instruments. You know what I mean? Like I want mm-hmm. the stuff to actually, like I want to actually be able to hear everything that is um, coming out, and I don't want it just to be a massive wash. And I don't know. I think we'll, I think we'll swing around because I think, I think I agree. We are in a second shoegaze. Um, a second shoegaze resurgence and I'm I don't know I think there's there's some new music to be made that is new and exciting and I don't know um, if we're going to get that out of more shoegaze bands so we well I think it's <laughs> I think maybe we should uh, look at it fondly in a sense that it at least gave us a couple years break from like another emo revival true I don't want any more of those <laughs> but it's like it's like I love I I mean I love so much emo but it's like it feels like a revival comes like every two years. Yeah. You know, so we're like in the wane of it, you know? Well, but, and I've, yeah. I'll, I'll be quick on this. I know we've been talking about you anyway, but something about emo, another album we could have talked about is uh, a band by the, uh, is every song by the hated, which is one of the you know first emo bands out of the eighties. One of my favorite bands, but I was talking about them recently about how, you know, the original kind of emo thing, you know, and the rights of spring and the hated and bands like that from that era, like evergreen. Um, 
they had a real grassroots community. They had a lot of folk influence, you know, and a lot of stuff. And then it took into like the 2000s and then it, you know, be, kind of became a total meme of itself and the genre died. Then you had the emo revival in 2011 and then it took like three years for it to become a meme of itself again. So I feel like next time we have an emo revival, it'll just instantly become a meme of itself. So what do you think? What do you think this next? Uh, I mean, we're just we're <laughs> oh, just like, what do you think? What do you think it will capitalize on? Because if we say the last revival, maybe I'm off by a revival yeah. was a lot of like uh, what was funny is like, I feel like people were like it was American football worship. And I'm like, I wish in ways it was. You yeah. know, because it's like I can put that record on. So it's like it wasn't even enough of that reference. But what do you think it would what would it be referencing if you were just to guess? Funny enough, I think we're gonna see some stuff that along the lines of twelve rods, even if they're not specifically okay. even if they're not specifically ripping off twelve rods, you've had a lot of synth stuff recently. A lot of the new, you know, um a lot of the new emo stuff has been kind of that mix of like with like hyper pop and a lot of like, you know, synth and electronic music infused. And I would say, just bring it all back together, 12 Rods kind of did that first. <laughs> so yeah. even even if they weren't necessarily, if they're not necessarily the inspiration for them, I think like that idea of synth-heavy indie rock, you know, I think that's something that they did in the 90s. So I guess we'll see. Well, so, okay. So we're also saying 12 Rods at Riot Fest. We're, we're hoping that that happens. <laughs> You know, yeah. I would love that. I would love to see them. Like I said, by the time I got into them, this reunion show had already happened. So, you know, I, I've never gotten a chance. I um, Ryan Olcott, the singer, used to do sound at that um, Minneapolis venue, the Kitty Cat Club or whatever. I don't know if okay. you've ever played there, but a lot of people I know have played there. And that place is closed now, and I was bummed because I was like, man, I was trying to, like, route a tour just to go there to get sound done by him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I'll tell you, uh, we played a show uh, close to – where we live uh, in Winston Salem, and the guy doing sound was, I believe, one of the singers of a band we liked when we were younger called Code Seven, and mm. we were like, "Damn, you know." So it's like, and it was just like, "Oh yeah, he's just just sound guy." Yeah, <laughs> you know, this it's happens. like, yeah. So it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you're just the sound guy. You know, sometimes you're just the bartender. I mean, that's what makes sense with you know like how many people we do in the bands that we like have ever even made a career off of the music they make barely any i mean all of most of pavement are like you know like the marky ball the bass player like is a bartender in new york yeah um the singer of sam i am also um like one of my other favorite bands also is like a bartender like you know it's like it's normal people have day jobs you know and it's like i don't know so to me that's kind of sometimes a little encouraging because it means like I can still do this. You know what I mean? Like, cause I have a day job. I'm not trying to make a career out of this. Like I want to do it as much in, you know, as long as I can. But I think it's sometimes as sad as it can be that people can't make a living off their music. It also means that like, Hey, there's, you know, there's still time for you to do something. You know what I mean? Like just because you're not young and, you know, didn't get started when you were young and weren't signed to a big label and now touring across the world all the time means you can't ever make music. There are plenty of people that, you know, they have to do other things to survive but they still make, you know, your favorite albums. I think that, you know, there you can look at that in, in a depressing light, but I think you can also look at it in an encouraging way that, you know, new music can always be made and you can, even you can do it. Welcome back. Thanks to Fisher for coming on the pod. Once again, check out Wishkit's new four-way split with Gnawing, Motroper, and New You. 
It's available wherever you stream music. Next time on the pod, we're talking with Harry Manier of the band Regal Cheer about Michael McDonald. More on that next week. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a comment, and reviews definitely help. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Matter for the theme. Okay, see you next week.